Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Brought in the big guns tonight. Yeah, yeah, I've got both of them here. <laughs> All courage could have come if he had known. <laughs> I, you know, John, I was listening to our podcast uh, in 191917. <laughs> That's the we're not that old. 2017. And Alexandra was on it. Oh, okay. Yeah, that'd be about right. She was she was crying in the background. <laughs> <laughs> so how are you, Trent? What are what are you up to these days? Um, I'm doing well. I'm living in Jeff City, work at the daycare at Capital City. I have four and five year olds fall through spring. And then I do older daycare stuff, uh, kindergarten through fifth grade in the summer. And yeah, my wife has her gluten-free baked good business. She does farmer's markets and events and stuff like that and raising a toddler and living life. All sounds like hard work. Yeah, I've talked to Paul about this, but I would say this is probably the best job that I've ever had. Like I look forward Mm -hmm. to, even though kids can be trying and Mm -hmm. stressing stuff, but like it's probably the only job I've ever had where I like really just look forward to going in and... Oh, that's neat. Doing yeah. what I do. So that's been good. Hi, Tim. How are you? Good, thank you. How are you guys doing? Great. Matt Someone here. knocking at the door? Someone well, ringing the bell? Yeah. Do me a favor, open the door and let them in. Or somebody let the dogs out. <laughs> Matt's here in full visual glory tonight. Hey, is that John Toddy? John Toddy. Uh, I'm here, Matt. Yeah. Oh, special guest. I was, I was invited and I came. Wow. If you go through the lectures, uh, I put up, John, I put up your blog and all four of our podcasts in 2017 that we did on secularism and the modern. So I was already here and didn't know it. You were here and did not know it. Yeah. So I wanted to bring the expert right into the class. How are you tonight, Thomas? Good. I've been busy. I got. I have a, a third job now. I'm doing a, an index job for one of my professors for a book he's co-editing called The Struggle Over Class, Socioeconomic Analysis of Ancient Jewish and Christian Texts. Wow. Sounds serious. So you are you still at the university? Uh, I, I graduated, but uh, my professors keep employing me. Yeah, that's the way to go. Just, just stay there. I wish. <laughs> <laughs> Don't ever leave. Thomas. I'm actually another another job that I have, but it'll probably be wrapping up at the end of this week. Is uh, I've been translating uh, different medieval Latin texts for a, prof- a history professor at UBC, so that's been a lot of fun. Nathan, how are you this evening? Not too bad. Not too bad. Nathan, I've been I've been meaning to ask you where you did your graduate work. Graduate work, I went to the Institute for Christian Studies, which is um, in Toronto, for. For the philosophy degree and then university of toronto department for the study of religion is where i did uh the phd so like basically religious studies department though um the area i focused on was ethics religion and modern thought so and and then i i, I don't know if you ever heard of bob gibbs he's like a pretty big uh Levinas scholar and so I okay kinda, i kind of studied under him a little bit 
they're, those guys are really, really busy. The classic like graduate experience where even my supervisor, like probably her name, Ruth Marshall, she probably only read the thing like right at the very end where Bob kind of, he was, he was working with me a little bit more closely, but even that it's, it's a, it's a diff- different story. But yeah. it was good overall. Uh, just to be able to say that, most people tell you the nightmare of getting a PhD. Yeah. I have nightmare stories. I, You know, with Connor Cunningham. Right. Yeah, that guy's probably busy too. He came up on my uh, to be my Facebook friend, and I thought, I don't want to be your friend. <laughs> no. <laughs> he wrote such a good book with the genealogy of nihilism. Oh, it was. It was brilliant. Uh, no, I think about the time I was studying with Connor, the BBC had approached him to do a television show. You know, he had written that book on uh, evolution. Oh, yeah. And so he was kind of, I think if he thought of himself as kind of a film star. That's also a good book. The uh, Darwin's Pious Idea or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, he, I, I like his stuff. It's just the guy. You had to send him the physical manuscript. And so I sent him the manuscript. I included a return mail, and I just get back an angry letter. That, but he eventually read it, and everything went okay. Long story short, now I'm sure he's a wonderful guy in some other situation. Dan is actually here in visual form tonight. Hey, the guy's got the camera sorted. <laughs> good deal. Hey, man. Good deal, man. It's like you've been kind of ghosting us. We we yeah, know you're there. <laughs> The only complicated, well, maybe it's all complicated, I don't know. The thing that I dealt with in this section was the point of view of the I in Romans 7. The claim I was making, I actually kind of like Boltman's material on this, is that this is Christian Paul looking back on non-Christian Paul, But of course, it's not simply Paul. The I there is clearly he's doing a commentary on the universal form of subjectivity. If this reading is correct, that what comes out from Christian Paul is an understanding of who he was that he was not aware of when he was a Pharisee. Chapter 7, you know, we often talk about it as if it is dealing simply with a psychological experience. And my point is, well, no, it's not actually dealing with experience per se, but the ground of that experience. And the ground of that experience, then, is this antagonism that Paul will describe as the law of the mind and the law of the body. I am presuming that neither of those need be what he's calling, says the law is holy, just, and good. But I'm assuming that in neither of those is he necessarily talking about that law in its purity, that in some way the law itself is obscured. And of course, the the main thing is that the eye attached in both instances, the body of death, the body of sin, that it is too then obscured by this being overwritten with the law, but that the experience is in and through the law. 
and that he comes to recognize this understanding that he was involved in the struggle or that we're all involved in this struggle. Yeah, this this is a lot like Kierkegaard's Sickness Unto Death, in which Kierkegaard is describing the self-relationship to the self, and that there's this missing third term. Here is the individual's experience of a universal condition. And what I'm projecting then and making a claim about is that philosophically, we can trace what tends to happen. We've already done a little bit with Hegel, the reification of death, but then also in the modern period or what we call secularism. That's why I was tying secularism or the theological turn that gives rise to secularism into this section. Not that it needed necessarily to go with these chapters, but I thought it fit here best. You know, that there's two ifs here. One is, are we given the universal human predicament in Scripture? I think we are, and I think that we can articulate this condition. And the, the place that we're going to encounter this, we'll just encounter it many places, but philosophically, that we'll just see the same thing arise again and again, and it will manifest itself differently in different periods. If we had to characterize the period leading up to the secular, and so we went through Dun Scotus, we went through William of Ockham. John, if you could define for us or describe for us nominalism, I think this is a key idea and what I would claim about nominalism, and John, I, have, I, don't, I don't know if John even agrees with me here, is that this is a manifestation of the same thing that we're talking about. Can you say, John, how would you describe what nominalism is? Uh, I think probably the easiest way of thinking about it is it just is a denial of universals. So it's this turn from thinking of creation, the cosmos, and God, and a participatory ontology, which was sort of the reigning paradigm through the late classical period, to no longer thinking that way and thinking in terms of things as uh, particulars and then universals only exist in name only. And I, I was trying to think about what you were saying there. You know, I think a, a nice illustration of that, I'm, I'm almost sure it's Occam, not Scotus, that does this. But, you know, Occam does something very similar to Descartes. Descartes' experience in the room, you know, what if this is not real? What if a demon's deceiving me? Except when Occam does it, it's, what if God is deceiving me? You know, what if the world only exists in God's mind sort of thing? And I think what you get then with this denial of a participatory ontology or this turn towards thinking in terms of particular things universals only existing in name only, it sets up this way of thinking about, Romans is actually an interesting test case because it would be a way of thinking about justification that has no real impact or bearing upon the human person. Maybe that's what Paul's describing a little bit. You know, this is the problem is this, this law, however he is oriented towards it. I think he gives those two orientations in Romans 7. Uh, it's really something that is completely other than him and so it not only you have the dualism there but of course as you said he's really describing subjectivity and so you have a split or a dualism within the self 
And so, yeah, I, I could see how nominalism would be a good manifestation or an example of that happening, for sure. The nominalism, it becomes a, a purely formal way of talking about the world in which ultimately God is absent. That is, that you don't encounter God himself, that God is removed in this picture, and so that all you have are these formal structures, if you want to put it in terms of Romans 7, that you just have the law, and that God is made absent. This is an experience that describes the shift in the whole culture. In other words, I think we live in what Paul is describing, that that's kind of the universal context, that we live in a world in which culturally, and I don't think this was formerly the case, that people now literally presume the absence of God. And maybe experientially, we live in the absence of God. And of course, the fear that even in Christian understanding, God is largely made absent in people's experience. And this shows itself in the kind of perversions. In other words, I think that we could talk about the modern age you know, if you wanted to be real provocative, you could call it the age of the perverts. But of course, in, in a sense, every age lends itself to that. But in this age, it's almost like philosophically, we've made the shift that I think Romans 7 rightly read, that we can see it, the, the prediction of this, that what does the world look like in the absence of God, that uh, well, you get just these formal structures. And I think that's a way of describing nominalism. Father John, I have a question. Because this is a really interesting um, conversation we've had for a long time, but I just want to make sure I'm clear on on the terms. When you say that, so, so nominalism then would be a denial, or do I have this wrong? So of like the transcendentals, of like the beautiful, the good, you know, humanity, you know, or whatever, like these big sort of, so is is the significance that, that they're not they're they're not sort of actual ex actually existing sort of uh, realities but they're just it's just sort of boils down to kind of like language or like a gap that's kind of between the way that humans talk about things or are they actually just like denying the existence altogether of of those sorts of like larger categories as like an inadequate way of yeah. talking that's i think it's probably a really interesting question that i don't really know the answer to because i think it works out in different ways for different people so, uh, you know, we could think of different examples. For example, Luther, you know, hates the theology of glory. And in a sense, what he means by that, I think, is that he finds very little room for uh, the sorts of moves that somebody, you know, the polar opposite, like von Balthasar will say, well, no, we can start with aesthetics. We can talk about beauty and talk about how all of these things participate. So that would be a case where I think Luther's nominalism actually leads him to a place where for him, you know, he's really talking about an a deus absconditus, a hidden God revealed in the cross. But even there, it's not as if the hidden God is fully revealed in Christ, but God is still hidden. <laughs> so, uh, you know, you have, that's one way of working it out that I think would uh, is that a denial of the existence of something like the transcendentals? I think yeah. it's at least a skepticism. Or, you know, you could then think about somebody maybe like Kant, who I don't think he's denying 
you know, so, such things exist. He just doesn't think we have any access to having a conversation about those kinds of categories as real things. Yeah, you said a really interesting thing to me a couple months back, and I've, I've not forgotten it. You said that, you know, when we talk about God as, you know, the beautiful and the good and the true, I think you were saying something like, well, let's let's kind of like never forget that those, those sort of words or categories or heuristics or whatever can't encapsulate God in any way. That, that maybe they're helpful ways of kind of like describing, you know, who God might be. That they're, God is sort of like ineffable in the sense that he's like beyond any sort of categorizations like that. But you're saying nominalism, though, is a sort of a rejection of even, uh, I guess, like, help, help me to understand in a simple way, like, what the, what the big problem is there. You just said something interesting, I think. Uh, in a sense, it's a denial of doing theology heuristically in the sense that you think. Uh, so here's one way of explaining or thinking about it. If you've ever read Thomas Aquinas, what's going on in the Summa? You know, people are obviously, maybe this is a bad example because so many people argue about how to interpret that. But one interpretation that is definitely anti-nominalist and uh, knows that it's anti-nominalist says, well, really what Aquinas is doing is not giving you a definition of God. It's not like he's defining any of these categories as he works through, say, the first 20-something questions there. But what he is doing is working heuristically towards what does it mean for finite humans to come into relationship, a saving salvific relationship, or ultimately friendship with God. And so heuristics there means something along the lines of Thomas thinks that as we come to understand each question, that understanding is already participating in further questions and further answers. And, and for him, of course, he sets this up in the very first question, what's this whole thing about? Well, it's actually about this is the way we're saved. So he thought that, I guess it's, uh, you know, he thought Lombard asked a lot of good questions, but he did so sort of haphazardly. So Aquinas has this sort of methodology that he uh, is implicitly using and the methodology in and of itself is just what would be parallel to the idea of a participatory ontology, meaning that, uh, you know, the high, this is very Kierkegaardian, right? Because it's that the lower already participates in the higher, but the lower is um, suspended, finds its proper telos, and then is explained by the higher. And that's something that that more ancient way of thinking about things or, uh, you know, thinking about the world and ourselves and God uh, and a participatory ontology would make sense. Nominalism doesn't think that's possible. So nominalism wants to say those relations aren't actually real. And so to be able then to use these sort of universal categories and think that as we progress in understanding that what we're actually growing in is understanding of some sort of universal, that, that's not something the nominalists want to grant. So you have to then talk more in terms, or you're, it, what it actually does is it reduces everything to logic. Like to its full, furthest extent, it would be the idea that you might be able to reduce what is true to syllogisms or something like that. That would be like hyper-nominalist uh, way of doing metaphysics, which is no metaphysics at all. It's just, it's logic. So it's logic instead of metaphysics. One thing is to describe, oh, here's these, these esoteric philosophers doing this. But of course, this then becomes a kind of cultural phenomenon. And so that the rise of secularism through these various figures is going to describe universal experience, which brings me, Nathan, to your work. 
And that is, I, I think that was somebody like Levinas. He's describing something that people in the medieval period would have just taken for granted. And that is that what we are as humans is part of a community that even, you know, Hegel is going to talk about even that, that it's only in the, in about being acknowledged by the other that we ourselves then, you know, this is the slave master relationship. Isn't it the case that someone like Levinas is needed, that understanding, because in fact, human experience through Hobbes and, and others, or just maybe just this notion of some sort of individualistic, autonomous understanding of the individual. Yeah, you want me to weigh in? Yeah, yeah, I was hoping you would. The upshot is that it, it leads to kind of abstraction and like, you know, everything gets, like you said, reduced to, to logic. And then what we need is, is kind of phenomenology. And what we need is, uh, yeah, the kind of everyday encounter where, and, and community and, and sociality, um, the social relation, the ethical relation to the other. So certainly that kind of thing pops up with, with Levinas that, you know, the self, like you said, is not autonomous but like heteronymous, heteronymous like you know structured from outside of the self from a command or a, de a demand placed on 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 uh, him or or her right so it's uh it's a uh, i mean i explored i ex uh, not to just to run with something too far but i just explored the later thought of of levinas and his magnum opus uh, otherwise than being or beyond essence so his, he's mainly interacting with Husserl and Heidegger, right? Like to try their, their depictions of what, of subjectivity and of selfhood and relationality and that kind of thing. And his is, I, I looked at the notions of hyperbole and holiness uh, because there's this, the, the very beginning of the work, I, uh, there's this thing in, in Derrida's uh, adieu to Emmanuel Levinas where he says, he and Levinas were walking along the river one day and he said, you know, people will, people will remember me as being, you know, about the other and about ethics, but really I've been uh, about holiness because the, the hyperbolic language of being hostage to the other, being bound to others and responsibility or like these hyperbolic language, like to, to love the neighbors, to take the very bread out of one's mouth and the very coat from one's shoulder. You know, it's this very like, self-denial kind of picture of the of, of and this is all prior this is like you think of like the ontic and the ontology like it's 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 we already are laid claim to even um as it, it comes prior it's actually what it's what actually enables the self to emerge so that's like later Levinas. That's why it's it's weird when you have thinkers like Lacan too and different things where like they shift a little bit of their thought is like really quick early Levinas is like the self is about its projects and then the other knocks at the door and says you know what resources do you have like the decentering of the self occurs but then in later Levinas it's much more like the self is already structured as for the other it's already laid claim to by this kind of mystical encounter uh, uh, or, or or underpinning or grounding of uh, on the hither side of freedom this kind of mystical thing where you're already oriented towards relieving suffering like that's as your very identity i was looking at his his hyperbolic 
the quality, the hyperbolic quality of his thought, but also his language, because, you know, I'm sure you guys have thought about like how texts perform things in you. Like if you, so performativity and things like that. And I, I find like, if you read otherwise than being or beyond essence, which is a very difficult, but rewarding text by Levinas, it like performs something in you. You get kind of like one over even you, it unsettles the reader, but it inspires the reader, animates the reader to suddenly be like, you know, like you're willing to just give all you have to another, to a person in need because it just over and over, he just works this ethical relation out and this ethical subjectivity. But I don't know where it fits in with the picture of like what you were all yeah. you were talking about. The only thing like that makes me think of, of your, of your uh, thing here was this thing from Zizek about enacting love, right? Um, and you, you write on 149, for Paul, the law of God can be extracted from the law of sin without passage through sin, because the original intent of the law was to preserve a relationship with God, which precedes and exceeds the law. Sin and the law need one another in Zizek's theory, while for Paul, the law may mediate sin, but sin does not mediate love. So I was, that really stood out to me because I guess... I'm always I'm interested in what will what what processes or like what you know like decentering or is it a prior thing or is it a yeah autonomous or heteronomous I'm always interested in what what will lead to enactments of love or compassion like what causes that and so you're saying in this picture Zizek is like you have to kind of in order to perform love you have to to be in the in the muck you have to see your sin but for Paul, it's just a reorientation of like to know that the law is to connect you with God or something. I don't know. I'm wondering if you can just kind of say a little bit more about that. Yeah, well, after yeah. my long thing about Levinas, but otherwise in being, add otherwise in being to your list. That's what you can get from that. Yeah, <laughs> and and maybe the you know the even the name of the book. Yeah, otherwise in being. What we're getting, I'm afraid, is the focus on being. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is uh, in a kind of nominalist understanding. Yeah, there's that, like the ontotheological stuff for sure, and then also the depictions of of the self, the self-preservation in Heidegger, kind of like the self about its projects, and it's he wants to say no, like that's not what it means to be a self. Yeah, at, at its core. Yeah, well, the, the easy thing is to describe Zizek, because what, what Zizek, you know, is saying is what Hegel is saying, is we need the fall, we need to pass through. In a Hegelian understanding and Zizek, you don't have cognition apart from the dialectic of the, the knowledge of good and evil. And so what Zizek is aiming at, yes, you have to pass through this, but you can manipulate it, and then he's hoping to extract from it something like, you know, he's going to use the language of agape love. Paul's not Hegelian. I don't think that God is a pervert. Uh, God's not the God of Calvin, that we don't need sin in order to have grace. We don't need the fall in order to have salvation. And so the love is then who God is. That is the essence of who we are, what we are. And I assume that the very, our very subjectivity, that we're describing a human subject, but of course, what would, even to arise as a person, 
We've already had to experience degrees of acknowledgement by other people in the crudest fashion, turn the kids out and give them over to the wolves and they're suckled by wolves, which has happened several times historically. You get wolf children. Or in the case, I I heard of a little girl, her parents put her in the chicken shed and she came out a chicken several years later literally thinking she was a chicken, that in some way we're nurtured, our, our subjectivity arises in this acknowledgement in Levinas's language in the face of the other. But actually that's there in Hegel, but I think that's just the New Testament. And of course, the way that we're saved is the recognition that we get in Christ, that here is an acknowledgement of who we are in Christ. Here is an affirmation of personhood. And it cannot bypass, in my understanding, and I, in this, I think I'm more of a materialist than Zizek, because I think Zizek ultimately loses the, the material world. The thing that we're describing is an embodied experience of acknowledgement, uh, over and against nominalism, over and against this formalization of the law, over and against this, the notion that I think is modernity, in which we're all raised to be perverts. What we have is an understanding that God has come to us incarnate in Christ, and that all of who God is then is to be found in Christ. That we understand not to reduce the Father to the Son, but we have access to the Father through the Son. In this, I really like John Bear on the Gospel of John, that the Logos of Christ is who God is. And I don't mean what is that somebody like Richard Rohr, the Franciscan, I'm afraid is repeating what we get in Dun Scotus, who was a Franciscan. I think, wasn't William of Ockham a Franciscan? All bad metaphysics is Franciscan. They're, they're all doing the same thing. And, I, and as, I, as far as I can tell, Richard Rohr's doing that. Uh, he's going to talk about a kind of univocity of being. Well, the problem is the univocity of being is what has given us secularism, because that just empties out. And so there, there is this notion that Richard Rohr is the guy who's going to re-enchant the world for us. Yeah, but he's re-enchanting it with the formula that disenchanted it in the first place. And that is this history that we're describing. Yeah, I did want to say, so you, I mean, you actually just said university of being now, but earlier you had said something very similar, and I think it works well with the Levinas stuff is that ultimately what we're describing is where you lose relationality or where you lose community uh, in all those beautiful ways that Levinas puts it, is that once you go along with university of being, which doesn't understand any kind of participation in being or, um, you know, an analogy of being or something like that, it just means that uh, in language, what we would attribute to God is the same way that we would attribute uh, attributes to ourselves or to the world. Um, when you lose any kind of true relations, you actually lose the other person. So you could ask, like, well, what do we think is actually communicated in those kind of relationships? And I guess the answer would be uh, either nothing or something like already out there, fully formed fact. Like um, you could be a nominalist and be a naive realist. Uh, of sorts. But what might be a really easy metaphor to understand all of that is what's happened in 
moral theology or Christian ethics. So that with nominalism, you get the privileging of you get the privileging of a deontological reasoning. Everything is rules based, and you lose the person completely. And this is what happens. This is what the Catholic Church does, even to the thought of Thomas Aquinas. We just create all these manuals. You can run down then exactly how bad one is based on the number of sins committed in their species, and then you confess them, and you know your penance, and you go on. But that's really not the moral vision of the Middle Ages. This is what happens uh, post-Occam and uh, Scotus. And so, well, and, well, I guess with Suarez as well, this is the Counter-Reformation. But what is, there's now been a turn, both I think theologically as well in moral reasoning, though what's interesting if we're talking about the Roman Catholic Church, that the theology is actually much further ahead of their moral theology. But it's, there's been this turn to thinking more about persons in terms of what the middle, medievals would have called final causality and primary causality, which is to say you're asking the question, what is a thing or what is a person? What the, what the reason for a person is rather than what is a person. So primary causality, what is a human being? If we're asking this, well, it's one who is in relation to God, created by God. Uh, into this dependent relationship upon God. What is a human being or where are we headed? And it's the Christian answer has always been um, Christ, full friendship with God and reconciliation to one another. Well, if you're insisting on doing everything deontologically, that is, if we're going to appeal to some sort of standard that's uh, at this point people just think is arbitrary, you know, this, this is the full modern project, you end up losing people and you end up losing the ability to have real relationships. But if we turn towards rather more a way of thinking uh, in ethics, you know, it's virtue ethics or something, who are we, what are we becoming, and how are we becoming uh, in relation to each other and to God, that's going to open all this up. And so I think that tracks really well with both the turn that you're taking, Paul, because you're saying in Romans 7, the whole problem is uh, really that the identity of the self is reduced to an orientation toward the law. Who's going to set me free from this body of death? And you're given a new relation uh, with Christ and the Holy Spirit, Romans chapter 8, etc. It also sounds very similar to what uh, Nathan was describing, kind of how Levinas sees people and relationships. Paul, I was going to say that maybe, is there something to be said that almost like the what your work is describing is that the Levinasian other is being displaced by what Zizek calls the big other? And maybe you could speak to that. Well, I, I want to hear Nathan's reaction to Zizek's reaction to Levinas. I think he incorrectly, um, I, I've had to argue with my uh, Bacanian friends and all this stuff about how the nature of this ethical uh, response to the other doesn't fit within the um, perverse superego. Like it's not a kind of structural, cultural nicety kind of thing it's because it's it's this again it's this like prior um transformative moment and event for the self right and for it is like when you spend a lot of time with a thinker like it seems like uh, a, a few of you guys have uh, that you 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 can then read something where someone has not done that right and there are definitely like two or three things I'll, maybe i'll i'll uh, recall them for for next week or something but he just in reading him you're just like no that's not yeah. You're not getting the full picture of what, what Levinas is, is trying to say. I mean, yes, on face value, on face value, there is this, 
the face of the other that makes a claim on you that then you can, it's an infinite call and an infinite responsibility. You can say no, but it's, you can never deny that there's, that you're kind of laid claim to by, by others. And what I think what he doesn't like is this obligation, right? But bottom line is he wants agape love and, and he wants the other to be able to appear. Oh, now I remember a big one, the monstrosity of others and stuff, right? What he says is Levinas reduces the other always to the widow, the orphan, and the stranger, which is true. It's kind of like you see the, the humanity in, in others. You see that even if they are acting a certain way or they, their particularities are like, that's why in contrast to Richard Carney, who thinks that we should be able to discern between strangers, Levinas is like, no, there's this kind of universal general generality behind the other. So that you, if, if like someone, I don't know, like your Muslim neighbor knocks on the door, you, you don't, you bracket like all these particularities and you just see humanity of the other. But what Carney and Zizek kind of want, because I do remember writing about this now, is they want you to be able to see the other in, in whatever shape, form and in cultural uh, forms and all this stuff. And still true love would be to then also to let the them appear in all ways or whatever and still extend love and compassion there it, it is an interesting argument i guess it's it gets, it's a lot of this kind of a kantian obligation versus sort of a genuine agape love but yeah, in, I, that, in that in that i'm almost making it sound like levinas doesn't come up as the victor but <laughs> uh that zizek has reduced levinas's other to a kind of perverse superego other yeah, there's definitely that where I like I tackled that. I was like, that's not the case. And then there was this whole thing about how the other appears, the alterity, like the otherness of. He always wants to maintain that you know uh, the alterity, like that they don't. It is need and is you know the widow, the orphan, the stranger. But but he but Zizek's like, well, what if someone comes in and is wants to like murder everyone? What does Levinas say there or something? He still says, because it's a, the saintly structure of subjectivity, a full vulnerability to the insults. It's this whole emptying out no matter what, right? So it is this, uh, his answer would be, he is still obligated and still oriented and all that kind of thing. So, I mean, I understand sometimes why people don't like Levinas because they can kind of, he does he does fall into the group of, of like, uh, of, where it can be perceived as, as, as impossible ethical demands placed on the self, right? Which, well, which I'm now that I'm getting into psychoanalysis a little bit, I can see a lot of them, Freud, Lacan, uh, that, you know, they don't like that, uh, that sort of um, the weight, the, the weight of obligation yeah. on the self. Hey, no, that's that's brilliant, though. It actually, so I think this fits back into that discussion that Paul was, how does this relate to nominalism and things? Because what you're describing is actually very similar to the thought of Alred of Ravot, who is a medieval uh, mystic of sorts, but he writes on friendship. And I think what somebody like Zizek would be missing here. Uh, that Levinas seems to be hitting on, even though he's not going to use Christian categories like Aylred would, is when you enter into friendship, there's all these different sorts of kinds of friendship. But as Christians, we always think there's this uh, eschatological dimension, this fact that uh, friendship is always going to participate in friendship with God or eschatological reconciliation. 
So another way of saying that is, of course, every friendship that you enter into has a little piece of what Zizek's saying, but we're just not so cynical to say that we can't transcend that. In other words, that we become friends and people want to become friends with us because we want to use each other. Like, there's no doubt. But the interesting thing, and this is what you're talking about, this sort of um, call, I would just say, you know, it's akin to the infinite uh, desire to know you know, this, this most basic question of who are we and who is the, who are we with the other person basically uh, that is already built into us because we have, we are creatures that are dependent upon each other and upon God beckons us to transcend that. And so the way Aylred puts it in the end is why should we be friends even with our enemies? And it's because that our enemies are actually potential friends in eternity. So once you have another way of just saying, well, if you think of this in terms of a participatory ontology, then, you know, even an enemy is not just statically such, but this whole idea of friendship or the, the uh, responsibility we have to the other is already always uh, calling us out of that turn inward uh, or that turn towards the individual self and calling us into community with other people. And uh, sure, for our basic needs, but also ultimately so that we become who we are meant to be, fully human in a sense. Yeah. We're actually just talking about something really basic and practical. What we've lost in modernity is just this basic interconnection, the sense that who we are is interconnected with other people. Even going back to somebody like, uh, as much as I critique uh, Anselm, Anselm was a brilliant friend, and they, they had a profound appreciation for friendship and, and the understanding that what it means to be a Christian is this interwoven relationship that we have with one another, that who we are as people is interwoven with a community of people. I think we've lost that, and that's what, in the end, that's really what we're describing. People are lonely. We have a culture that isolates us, that is alienating, and that creates a profound loneliness. And unfortunately, the Christianity that is fostering this in its whole notion of what a soul is and, you know, souls going to heaven. And we've lost this sense that what it means to be a follower of Jesus is to become integrated into a community of people into agape love, and that's what makes us human. Uh, that is salvific. It, while in a sense this all, you know, it may sound esoteric, in fact it's not, because I think what we're trying to articulate is that we've been given a, a kind of experience in modern culture, that this is what all of our neighbors, they don't have to have read Hobbes to understand, ultimately, you know, in Hobbes everything reduces to violence. And, you know, this is Hobbes' picture of that every state then depends upon the power of violence. And so the whole discussion uh, that sovereignty, the sovereignty of God uh, in the secularization thesis, is it Carl Schmitt that the whole secular understanding is actually then taking theological understandings and emptying God out of it? I think that's probably right. Uh, Carl Schmitt, by the way, was a good Nazi. And he's brilliant on this, in his insight into this, into the sense that sovereignty and law then are the reigning understanding of the period 
certainly of which we live in and uh, in which he lived. That is that there's an emptying out of humanity. And that's ultimately, I think, what we're describing and what needs recovering. Well, this is like, this is purely kind of like an anecdotal sort of thing, but I, I couldn't help but to think that um, I didn't, I didn't grow up in the church, you know, and whenever I was baptized and became a Christian, the first thing that I noticed, strangely enough, is that I didn't feel, I didn't feel lonely anymore. I think that was, if I could describe my whole life apart from, uh, you know, before I became a Christian, I would describe it as, as lonely. I realized that one day, I remember I was sitting in a, in a dorm room and I thought to myself, I was like, I, I don't know what it is, but I don't sense, I don't have that same feeling of, of, of loneliness anymore. <laughs> I kind of, re- it was like the day that you said that you remembered, uh, you know, in your blog that, you know, I am me. It was kind of one of those moments. I don't feel lonely anymore. It was, it was a very beautiful in- integration, I guess you would call it. I think that, I think this is a brilliant conversation. I mean, that's certainly what attracted me to when somebody says that God loves you and suddenly the universe becomes one that, that we live in a world of that is ultimately love is the reality mm-hmm. that we're describing and talking about. And I think that's what we've lost in secularization, in the notion of the sovereignty of God and in uh, Protestantism and Calvinism and sovereignty as it's been translated into notions of power in the modern state. Schmidt is right. Our religion now, that we naturally tend to find our identity in the nation state, in various organizations or, or, or entities, have taken the place of the church or taken the place of God. I think that's just instinctively there for us. And there's a reason for that, and that's what we're trying to describe is, oh, you can actually trace the genealogy of this thing, and you can describe that people's experience of the world in the medieval period, they experience the world differently than we do. That atheism, it's a real plausible possibility for people now. And of course, I think that was not a possibility in the medieval period. Not that there weren't bad people, I don't mean that. But if they were bad people, if you were a bank robber, you were a Christian bank robber, because that was your only choice. You might be breaking, you might be going against your conscience, but now there is an emptying out of the universe of of morality and of God out of the world, so that now belief or unbelief is just a choice. That's one choice among many choices. And I think that that we have to recognize that we're in a strange place culturally, and all we're trying to do is trace this. And I think philosophy is a way of tracing it. It's a way of articulating what happened. Obviously, I don't think that that's to say these things in their fullness. You'd have to describe sociologically and uh, in all the, you know, scientifically the things that are taking place. But I think the philosophical and theological articulation is the key then to to understanding how we got where we are. Um, that reminds me of um, I haven't read it all, but Charles Taylor Taylor's uh, A Secular Age really seems to capture this, like you said, uh, historical and philosophical. You know, kind of like how did we get here? It's like become one of those ones that are on a lot of people's shelf that they haven't read yet, like. Hegel's phenomenology of spirit or something. It's yeah. just like, you know, everyone has Charles Taylor's secular age. Have they read it? Yeah. But anyways, uh, I, just, I had to read like 80 pages of it for a class on secular, secularism. 
but a lot of what you said where it's it's become a choice and all of the he, he mentioned things like that yeah yeah oh this was our our conversation earlier that was uh it's a bold claim that we're making as christians i think but you know we were saying something like i am you know paul axton you know, it's like, I, I, I am John Toddy. I am. T- it's like, in other words, like as Christians, what we're saying is, is there, there's no such thing as an isolated sort of individual self that I quite literally don't have myself apart from the other. But what I think Zizek is saying, though, is that what we've done is we've displaced that real actual other with the big other, with the law, w- with the obstacle, you know, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and that is our predicament. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I don't know where to put Zizek because I, I think he actually finds people disgusting. <laughs> he says as much, you know. He does want to talk about love, but I, I don't, <laughs> I'm not real confident what he means when he talks. He, he's better when he's just describing how disgusting people in life are, and he's not so good in describing love. <laughs> That's why he spits on everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's good. That's a good. From what I read, that sounds right. I think he's kind of following Agamben, you know, does everything brilliantly. And so he's kind of following Agamben, even in this conversation about love. But of course, Agamben, I I think, I'm not sure where he is either. So I think, and that's the transition we're making is in this chapter. I think that we, we now have in sight the disgusting, despicable, and, and we're all evil enough that we kind of instinctively understand this stuff that, okay, yeah, I, I, I got that. We can do, we can go beyond that. It was it James K. Smith on, on Charles Taylor. It's good. <laughs> yeah. if, if you want to get into, um, yeah, secular age, uh, yeah. he's, he's part of the um, radical orthodoxy stable, isn't he? James K. Smith, I read his stuff on radical orthodoxy, and I didn't like it, I'll be honest. He's reformed, right? He's, He's a reformed, reformed theologian. I, I knew a guy who studied with him. He also is not very good at practicing, uh, you know, seeing other people as potential friends and oh. being in a relationship. <laughs> and he's a Canadian. That's shocking. <laughs> it's just, It's just genetic up there, huh? I like his stuff, though. I've read him. I've, I like a bunch of his stuff. You know, his stuff on liturgy and all that was great. I liked his book on desire. Yeah, desiring the kingdom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I did. I particularly didn't like his stuff on radical orthodoxy. I he may be good on Charles Taylor, but unfortunately, I think he made tried to make the radical orthodox guys reform. <laughs> That's real tough. Yeah. There is a good book for the church, if you're interested, if you're a churchy person. I think it's Andrew Root has basically applied Charles Taylor to how you might think about this as somebody within the church. The Homebrew Christianity crowd had a whole teaching series recently with Andrew Root doing that thing. Um, John, yeah. I was just going to say, isn't it interesting what John, and if John, if you could put that... I didn't catch the the um the name of the guy that's doing the work on friendship. That was that was great. I maybe you could put that in the chat or something. But isn't it interesting the contrast there between what John was talking about and Zizek's inability, you know, to sort of like friendship is kind of like an obstacle or or, or like a problem for for Zizek because I think that that's a profound thing though that what you're saying is such a simple point that um, that unity, uh, friendship, love, 
is you know christian salvation but for kind of like the modern mind the, the self is almost like an um sort of like an, like an obstacle to, you know to good well yeah. zizek says somewhere friends are to be exploited <laughs> so like you know he's uh he's good on friendship too but i think you know he just wants to point out that's that's why someone i had two close friends that you know when i was writing the dissertation on levinas and said after this and i ended up touching on it towards the end a little bit on the impossible demands and stuff. But they're like, at the end of this, you have to go through psychoanalysis and see if you're still Levinasian on the other end. But that's what I'm attempting to do. He just always wants to problematize the kind of love your neighbor sentiments and ideas with like, no, we actually, uh, true friendship is to realize that you're, you are, you're going against the second to, formulation of the categorical imperative. Do not uh, treat someone as a, as a means, but always as an end, right? He's like, no, you're, you're basically just using, everyone's using each other, and let's just be realistic here. I, I like uh, his introduction. Who is it? Zupanichik's book on Kant and Sassad. And Zizek writes the introduction. And of course, in the only way that he can experience friendship, he, he says, he says, this book is so good that I wish that she had been hit by a truck and run over because I wanted to have said these things. <laughs> that, that's his, that maybe is his most profound love relationship. <laughs> you want to hope that he's joking, but I'm, I'm never sure. But there's certainly the full acknowledgement of jealousy and, and all that. And, and I think that's what you get in his d picture of the universe. In other words, I think that, that you're always just there, that you can never escape those parameters, that that just binds you. And yeah, given his understanding, I understand that he is a Roman 7 Christian, he would say. But you understand that many Christians would call themselves Romans 7 Christians. Uh, he's just up front and says, well, I'm an atheist. But I think that anybody that's a Roman 7 Christian I, I don't mean to be mean, but in other words, I think you can be a greater pervert than even Zizek if you introduce God into the mixture of your perversion. It does become a, a kind of ultimate cruelty. And, and unfortunately, we're just reading Romans, but we're reading it in a way that is addressing the human condition. In other words, the, uh, the other reading that we could, we, you can read this whole book and say, well, this is a book about the law and how Christ meets the demands of the law. And that's the way that many Christians are going to read the Bible. They're going to read New Testament Christianity. And so they reduce it, I'm afraid, to a kind of perverse, there, there's a perverse tendency there, in which this beautiful thing that is unfolding, that we're describing, it's all there that connects us to other people and that we are alienated, we're disconnected, there's an antagonism there, that we're describing the genealogy of that antagonism, of that alienation, and how it is that Christ overcomes that. So it becomes a very practical understanding. How to be a friend. What is friendship? I just posted real quick that Jamie has a new book that uh, my MA supervisor, I'm in a Hegel reading group, and my MA supervisor, supervisor was talking about how he was asked to give a review of it, but then ran out of time. But uh, it's coming out on Baylor Press, the Nicene Option, an Incarnational Phenomenology. 
So I'm, I'm engaging a range of philosophers in this tradition, Husserl, Heidegger, Derrida, Levinas, Merleau-Ponty, Jean-Luc Marion, Richard Rorty, and Charles Taylor. Smith's constructive proposal coheres around what he describes as the logic of incarnation. Sounds promising. I, I mean, that's sort of my problem, you know, with Jean-Luc Marion. My interest in him, he seems caught up in this whole thing that he's kind of bought into a whole modernist understanding. And the only way around it is a kind of apophaticism. And I think you can decide, sidestep that. Mm, negative theology and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Dan, are you content? I'm very content, lads. Yeah, yeah, I'm happy. Happy is the thing we're always looking for. <laughs> okay. All right. Good group. Good meeting. Well, this is week six. We have two more weeks. Uh, and so next week we get in heavy to the positive resolution. Well, thanks for having me, Paul. Oh, John, good. Glad you could come. And you, you did precisely what we needed, I think. Oh, well, thank you. Back next week. Well, maybe next week I won't be uh, on child duty. Great. Great. Although the kid, kids added, I thought. <laughs> Back either way. <laughs> All right. Good night, everybody. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.